Support for Market Foolery comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interest in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com/fool. It's Wednesday, February 15th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Matt Greer, and joining me in studio, we've got Jason Moser from Million Dollar Portfolio and David Kretzman from Supernova. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey, Matt. Hey. How are you doing? Are you ready? We're ready to go here. Always ready. Okay, well, let's begin with Warren Buffett. On Tuesday, Berkshire Hathaway reporting its latest portfolio moves. Jason, some real interesting moves here. Berkshire really loading up on shares of Apple and unloading most of its Walmart positions. They're also adding new stakes in Monsanto, SiriusXM, and Southwest Airlines. Yeah, a lot of fascinating moves there. I mean, we talk a lot about watching the investors that we respect and the moves that they make. We never advocate just going ahead and blindly following, but I mean, I think it's always interesting to see uh, sort of different perspectives on things. And um, I, I personally, what really stood out to me was the, uh, the the dumping of the Walmart shares, because we've talked a lot about this before. How the retail space, general retail, is being disrupted, and and Amazon is really the company out there doing it. And and it's interesting the, what the market is telling us is is. Basically, all you need to know here. I mean, we look at Walmart today. The market values it. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of two hundred billion dollars, and it's bringing in over four hundred billion dollars in sales every year. Well, Amazon brings in you know maybe a quarter of the of the total sales that Walmart brings in. Yet Amazon's market cap is double that of of, of Walmart. So it's clear to see that the market, being that it's forward looking, is is looking into the future and thinking, hey, this is the direction things are going. Amazon's really the one leading the way. Walmart kind of got caught asleep at the wheel, and I think that now Walmart's paying the price. I wonder if Berkshire in the next three years adds Amazon to its portfolio. I mean, hey, they're warming up to to tech with Apple, so maybe (laughs) Amazon's next. to me, what really stuck out is a couple weeks ago, Buffett in an interview he mentioned that since the election, Berkshire has invested about twelve billion dollars, which is roughly eight percent of that one hundred fifty billion dollar or so portfolio that they have investing in public stocks. That's that's a lot to be investing as the market is hitting new highs. Obviously, we we tend to think of Buffett and Berkshire as value investors. So, on the surface, you wouldn't expect those kind of investors to be. Investing quite a bit as the market is hitting new highs, so I think that that says a lot. They also unloaded their stake in in Deer and Verizon, and Kinder Morgan was another one that we follow at the full. So interesting to see Berkshire dumping Kinder Morgan after less than a year of holding it. Kinder Morgan is an infrastructure company, a natural gas and oil pipeline, and then to be loading up on airlines, which tend to benefit from lower energy prices. So maybe that that they're they're seeing something or expecting something with energy prices to remain low, which would benefit oil uh, airlines and could hurt some energy infrastructure companies like Kinder Morgan. So, if I'm an investor and I'm considering some of these stocks, to what extent should I try to mimic what Buffett and Berkshire are doing? Because obviously, he's had an incredible track record. Should I should I mimic some of these moves, or is he playing a different game? I don't think you ever want to blindly follow any investor. I think what you want to mimic is the process and the strategy. So obviously, we do that at the Fool with David and Tom Gardner, another great investors here, uh, Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett. I think if you're just 
blindly following any investor, you're not really going to learn a whole lot as an investor. You really want to understand the thought process that goes behind those decisions. And I think that's what's key to, to be a successful investor. Yeah, I think a very good example of that, because I think David's spot on there, is that if we look at a look at a business like Markel that we talk about often here, and we refer to it um, as sort of a baby Berkshire in many ways, because the business is set up very much the same way. I mean, it's an insurance business that owns a portfolio of stocks and now wholly owned businesses as well. Um, Tom Gaynor, the co-CEO, uh, generally he's he's known for the investing success there at the at the company as well. If you look at the holdings in Markel's uh, portfolio, hey, they own Apple. They also own Amazon. They don't own Walmart. Uh, you know, so they own Facebook. So there's a business where they do a lot of things that Berkshire does as well, but even 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 they aren't mimicking those moves, uh, despite the fact that that Gainer and company are professed uh, Berkshire fans. They have a wonderful brunch there out the day after of the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. There's a lot of similarities in that business. There, it's very very small comparatively speaking, um, but but you can see there is is an example in Markel's portfolio where. Sure, they follow some of Buffett's leads there, but they also do their own thinking and come to their own conclusions. We encourage investors out there to do the same. And guys, let's talk Shopify. Shares of the e-commerce platform up big on Wednesday after the company reported better-than-expected earnings. David, I think for a lot of investors, Shopify is not exactly a household name. The stock has really been on a tear, though. Yeah, Shopify is is a company that's in the background, but you've probably interacted with its platform in some shape or form. The company serves uh, almost 400,000 merchants, mainly small and mid-sized businesses. So, if you're a, a small business looking to get online, have an online shopping cart, Shopify is is one of the platforms to go to if you're looking to set up a, a shopping cart, set up that online platform to offer goods and services online. So, a, a, a lot of smaller businesses uh, are, are among Shopify's customer base. But yeah, th- this was a great quarter. The company is having no problem growing quickly right now. Sales were up 86%. They added 50,000 merchants, bringing that total to 375,000 merchants under their umbrella. That's up more than 50% from uh, where they were at the end of 2015. So, a lot of growth here. And, and the market opportunity here is still pretty big. And I think that's why, even though the stock is trading at a premium valuation, this level of growth theoretically could continue for a while because if you look at the key geographies where Shopify operates today there are about 10 million merchants with less than 500 employees uh, in those markets so that's really the key demographic that Shopify is going after and every time uh, the the average revenue per merchant on Shopify's platform is above $1200 now so that that would suggest a market size of about 10 billion dollars so still a lot of room to run here but the stock is is still pricey yeah i think the one we've we've looked at Shopify for MDP it's it's obviously it's a recommendation in a number of our services here and very fascinating business from a number of different uh, perspectives there are a couple of things that i i still the questions I need answered here. Number one is just from the profitability perspective, right? I mean, yep. they are growing, still not profitable, not cash flow positive. I wonder when is all of that going to change? Because I think if it does change, when it does change, um, it could be a tremendous catalyst. But I also wonder how much the market is pricing into there today. But the other question I have is just in, re- in regard to third-party relationships, right? With everything that Shopify does well, there is a provider that's kind of helping them along the way. And, and I'll use payments as an example. Uh, they they contract uh, with Stripe, I yeah. believe, as as a provider on the payment side. 
at some point, Stripe is going to look to become profitable, and they're going to try to exercise a little pricing power, which in turn is going to flow through Shopify's financials, unless they figure out a way to diversify from that provider as well. So, I just kind of wonder, from the perspective of those third-party providers, how that plays out on this business down the road in 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 its profitability. And along those lines, they've also got one of those frenemy dynamics with Amazon. They compete with Amazon, but they obviously are a partner of Amazon's. So, David, when you think about that frenemy dynamic, as an investor or a potential investor in Shopify, how much should that concern you? I think it's something to to be aware of. And I think some people gave Shopify probably a little bit more credit than it deserves for uh, the transition Amazon made from its web store business. So, in 2010, Amazon launched a similar business to what Shopify has done. So, it was a few years after Shopify had started, and Amazon essentially said, we have a lot of third-party sellers on Amazon, and we want to build a web store for those sellers to, to have their own independent website, which is essentially what Shopify did. Amazon shut that down in 2016, and basically made it easy uh, for those Amazon web store sellers to transition or migrate to Shopify's platform. So, Shopify called itself the preferred migration partner. But what a lot of people don't say is that there were only about a thousand merchants on Amazon's platform <laughs> uh-huh. last year. So that's really that's it's a it's a win for for Shopify, but it's not a huge catalyst, I don't think. So you want to be aware of all those dynamics, and I think uh, to to a similar point, it's not just with Amazon; it's also with uh, the, those third party uh, merchants, the the payments providers, the shipping solutions, because you have a lot of different companies providing those services. You have other online marketplaces like Etsy, which are branching more and more into Shopify's territory. So, I, I can see why people are excited about the business because, on the services, is a, a potentially very attractive business because it's recurring revenue. It's it's a subscription fee. Shopify is bringing in monthly subscription revenue. If they can retain those uh, enterprises over time, that could be very profitable. But up to this point, the company is still uh, the, the losses are expanding, still uh, burning cash. So. Uh, it, it's a riskier stock still. Okay, guys, shares of Fossil down big on Wednesday. <laughs> now, when I think Fossil, okay, I don't really think Fossil, but <laughs> if I were to think Fossil, I think watches. You didn't get your wife something from Fossil. <laughs> so, for so what, what's Day the story here with Fossil, Jason? Hey, I mean, listen, you know, leather accessories and watches and tchotchke, I mean, that's just, uh, if that doesn't scream huge market opportunity, Mac, I don't know what does. Um, I, this is, this is a business that has been in a lot of, a lot of, Trouble here for a while. I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, I was looking at this back in May of uh, 2016 because of, of some revised guidance to the downside that really took its toll on the stock. And I think we're seeing more of the same here. I mean, the bottom line is retail is tough, but when you're in sort of fashion retail and sort of tchotchke fashion retail, I think it's even more difficult. There's certainly no real pricing power in that market. And Fossil is not known for really sort of that aspirational brand that people will pay up for. Uh, so uh, they're doing. I, I I respect the fact that management is is attempting to, to diversify the revenue stream somewhat. Uh, they they made an acquisition a little while back uh, to get some exposure uh, to the connected fitness uh, realm, and I I don't know that I necessarily look at that as the as the biggest opportunity either. I mean, it was Misfit, I believe, is the name of the company they acquired. Yep. If you look in the release that they just put out this morning, I mean, they say, quote, 
We'll double our efforts and wearables by launching over 300 SKUs, introducing new brands to the platform and enhancing engineering to enable additional functionality in more stylish and slimmer cases. Now, to me... You sound skeptical. Well, I mean, you know, I think there's reason to be skeptical. I mean, we've seen what's happened with Fitbit. We've seen, you know, a less than stellar response to other smartwatch products. I think it's it's fair to question this strategy, and and I don't know that it's it's necessarily the the solution for this company. I mean, if you look at the top line, it's going in the wrong direction. Margins going in the wrong direction. This is not something that just happened overnight. It's been happening over the past five, six, seven years. Uh, I, I think investors would be would be very wise to avoid this one. And you're not wearing a watch, David. You wear I a watch. Am wearing no. a oh, watch. you are wearing a watch. Sorry. Yes, come okay. On not a smart watch. A gift from my lovely wife. When okay, I you're old 40. school though. Yeah, yeah, but I am. You're people right. aren't wearing watches as much, right? Um, Maybe not. Yeah, I think that's a challenge, right? You've either got your watch aficionados or people who like watches who probably aren't going to really want to wear something like that. And you've got people who don't wear watches at all. You've got to convince them to put something on their wrist, and they're probably not, a la Matt Greer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or you've got people who are looking for maybe a dedicated fitness device, and I think there are other more compelling options out there. So these guys are fighting an uphill battle. Apple Watch can get a bad rap, but it's still, since it came onto the scene a couple of years ago, still captures over 50% market share in that smartwatch category. And, and I think the Apple Watch Series 2 is really the crown jewel as far as uh, smartwatches go. And just anecdotally, it's interesting seeing uh, Fitbit, Under Armour, and uh, Fossil all getting crushed this quarter. Obviously, they're all in connected fitness in a different way. But uh, yeah, I was I was out at CES early January, and Fossil was one of the many connected fitness wearable device companies out there, and that's just a, a category that is getting very crowded, and it's hard to dis- distinguish what's different about what Fitbit or Under Armour or Fossil are doing. And I'll tell you, just from my experience in the golf business years ago, because part of what I did as a golf professional was was run a golf shop, so that's a retail business, and you have to basically stock it with the stuff that people want. And there was a dynamic to it for this type of stuff. It was Brighton. Uh, most of the demand there on on uh, on the club side was was for Brighton keychains, watches, purses, things like that. And it, there just is no pricing in this. I mean, inevitably, it all stayed on the shelves until Christmas time when we put everything on sale. So it's just a really difficult market, and um, it's not terribly shocking to see Fossil having a tough time. And I, I wouldn't rush to, to see it as a buying opportunity either. I mean, the company is still producing a good amount of free cash flow. So on the surface, you, you might be inclined to see this. Well, maybe maybe it'll bounce back at some point, but. Revenue has dropped each year since 2014, and expenses have continued to go up. So you've just seen margins get crushed. And what really highlights it is, the earnings per share was seven dollars ten cents in 2014, and for 2017, management is guiding for earnings per share of negative fifty cents to positive twenty cents. So that's quite a range. Things are going to get a lot worse before they get better, if ever. Before we get to our final story, I want to say a word about Rocket Mortgage. Choosing mortgage lender is a big decision. You want to work with someone you can trust and someone who has your best interest in mind. Those are not phrases we often associate with mortgage lenders. With Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process, so you'll have the confidence to make an informed decision. With Rocket Mortgage, you can also adjust the length and the rate of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. And Jason, as someone who once worked in the financial services industry, mortgages can be a tricky thing. Extremely tricky. And as someone who's going through the process of selling and buying houses right now, I mean, it is just a it's a process that is just filled with with just 
a lot of question marks. Well, with Rocket Mortgage, you can get rid of those question marks. It's a transparent online process. So whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, there's going to be a lot less paperwork, and Rocket Mortgage can help. So skip the banks, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. And guys, let's conclude here with SodaStream. This is a stock that has been incredibly volatile over the last couple of years. And we've got some good news. And the stock up big on Wednesday after reporting better than expected earnings. And Jason, forget soda. <laughs> it seems like the story here is sparkling water. Well, I liked our conversation earlier this morning. Maybe this, maybe this company really it all just boils down to the wrong name. Right? Terrible I mean, name. We're, we're, we're sitting here ragging on soda, it seems like, quarter in and quarter out. I mean, maybe it needs to be something like Seltzer Stream or whatever. But <laughs> I, I think the real beauty to this business uh, in the beginning, I mean, it's one that we've covered here in the Foolish Universe. And what do they for, do for, for people who don't know the uh, company? So, SodaStream basically sells you these machines so that you can make seltzer or soda at home. You can yeah. carbonate your own water and, and make your, your own sodas at home. And I mean, on the surface, it sounds like a pretty neat idea. You don't have to go lugging around 12 packs of Diet Coke anymore. Uh, you can just do it all right there at home. I, mean, I hate that idea. I'm sorry. I've, I don't find that appealing at all on the surface. What, having like, the machine there? Yeah, I don't want to. I don't drink soda, but I wouldn't want to make my own soda if I drink soda. I, I mean, don't it's like disagree. make your own toothpaste. I mean, I'm not like why? Why? I don't disagree. So I mean, no, as, as not a, on the surface. Take a, it back. As a diet coke guy, I mean, Soda Stream as a product never attracted me from the beginning. Now, I will also say I've made a big shift in trying to drink more seltzer. Um, but even as even as that has occurred, I still have zero interest in having one of these soda streams on my counter at home because of the fact that you've got to keep on uh, re- replacing that CO2 cartridge. It's just constant maintenance. And I think that's really what that's the crux of the of the question here really is the beauty of the model has always been the razor and blade nature. Yep. The razor being the machine and the blades being the consumables that you that you use for the machine, the CO2 cartridges, the flavors that you use for whatever yep. you're wanting to drink. And for a long time, it seemed like maybe this had promise. It certainly has gained a lot of traction overseas. U.S. I think the U.S. market was really viewed as a potential opportunity. That never really played out so much, and the stock got pummeled over the past few years because of that. Interesting to see they're making a little bit of a comeback here. Yeah. And if you look at the numbers, I mean, it was about 22.4% unit growth for the quarter, which translated into 37% growth. In, in revenue for the for those machines. So they're actually selling machines and they're getting some decent pricing on them. The growth in the consumables, which is the higher margin, uh, was was less was less impressive, five uh, percent. So this kind of gets back to the initial question that we always had with these things, which it's one thing to maybe give this thing as a gift to someone and think, oh, it's yeah. a neat machine or whatever. But ultimately at some point, does it not just end up collecting dust on your kitchen counter? And and I think that's the hurdle that they still have to clear. I, this was a decent quarter. I'm not sure it necessarily indicates that they've cleared this hurdle and that everything is better again. And David, looking at the stock chart for the last few years, it's gone from 40 up to around 70, all the way down to 13, and now it's back around 50. Back, Yeah, across 50. And I think SodaStream is a great time to take a, a step back and just uh, see a lesson there, that cutting a loser too too early is uh, you don't want to be cutting a, a future winner too early and and SodaStream I think the the verdict's still out whether or not it is a winner but I would much rather hold 
a loser too long than sell a winner too early. And I think it was really easy. Like in Rule Breakers, we sold SodaStream <laughs> right around 13 uh, a year or two ago, and you know since then you know the stock has come roaring back up almost four times over the past year. So I think there is something to be said for the the strategy of just buying and forgetting. So like even if you have a loser, if it's a small percentage of your portfolio, there is something to be said for just letting that ride. But with SodaStream, it's interesting to look at why. What has enabled this company to come back? I think part of that is the the repositioning of the product, focusing less on a soda alternative and more just a soda replacement or that sparkling water aspect of the product. But the company also has always had a pretty stable business in Europe, and Europe right now, the the Western Europe business is still double the the business that SodaStream generates in the Americas. Right now in America, the, the household penetration, so the number of households with a soda stream in it, is about 1.5%. In Europe, that number is over 10%. So wow. there is still a runway if soda stream can somehow crack that code here in the US. There is still a runway for growth there. But in the meantime, that European business is still growing. So uh, I, I think there's still a lot to like here. The, the margins are, are really uh, increasing. But I, I agree with JMO that you really want to see those consumables, those repeat purchases increase because I think that's, that's really what matters most for long-term shareholders. Okay, so you mentioned the repositioning. I want to come up with a better name. So let's go around the horn cuz right now SodaStream, I think soda for too many people has a negative connotation now. So what are you changing the name to? Fizzbot. Fizzbot, I Fizzbot, like it. Fizzbot, I like that. 21st century. I like it, Jason. Yeah, I mean I'll I'll go with Seltzer Stream honestly. I feel like soda conveys this unhealthy sort of Vibe that that we're you know we're seeing in the soda market. Soda's just it's either a bad drink or it's what George Costanza wants to name his baby on <laughs> Seinfeld, right? So I mean it's like let's go, let's go to where where the let's skate where the puck is going, as they say, Seltzer Stream. So I've got two. You ready? Well Stream. Like I'm feeling well. That sounds wellness. like they just got bought by Wells Fargo. Okay. Well then. Okay. And then, that's 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 not in a good in a then, good way. Then here's the winner. You have a backup. Here's the winner. Right. Fun Stream. <laughs> <laughs> Like a, it's a like party kids, or something. It's like that's like one of those. It's like a, a super squirter that you I mean, kids who doesn't like fun? In the backyard, who right? doesn't like fun? Listen, I feel like you'd okay. see that Chuck E. Cheese super or okay. soaker or something. What is it? Yeah. Hey, it's brainstorming. Yeah. There are no wrong ideas at this point. Okay, David, Jason, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mac. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Mac Greer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.